Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Zen Buddhism by the Numbers, number four, the four noble truths. The second truth, the origin of dukkha. Muman Khan, case 29. The sixth ancestors, your mind moves. The wind was flapping a temple flag and two monks started an argument. One said the flag moved. The other said the wind moved. They argued back and forth, but could not reach a conclusion. The sixth ancestor said, it is not the wind that moves. It is not the flag that moves. It is your mind that moves. The two monks were awestruck. Muman's comment. It is not the wind that moves. It is not the flag that moves. It is not the mind that moves. How do you see the ancestor? If you come to understand this matter deeply, you will see that the two monks got gold when buying iron. The ancestor could not withhold his compassion and courted disgrace. Muman's verse. Wind, flag, mind moving, all equally to blame. Only knowing how to open his mouth, unaware of his fault in talking. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It seems like a long time since I've been here. (laughs) But I have been with you all on Zoom, and in my heart I've been with you all this entire time. So today is Soen Roshi Memorial Day. Soen Roshi was born on March 19th, 1907. So almost 116 years ago. He was a remarkable person. He was a little bit before my time. Unfortunately, I never had the chance to meet him. Shinge Roshi may be one of the few remaining students to have actually studied with Soen Roshi personally. He was 
a student of literature at Tokyo Imperial University, and he revered the poet Basho, the haiku master, generally revered as the greatest poet of Japanese history and one of the great poets of all time. He took Basho as his exemplar both in his life and in his poetry. Basho was a worldly individual as much as a poet is ever a worldly individual, but later in life was ordained as a lay monk and dedicated himself to Zen in his life and in his poetry. And he made a huge impression on Soen Roshi, who was also, besides being a Zen master, a very well-known and renowned poet in his own right, one of the great haiku masters of the 20th century. Soen Roshi was ordained at the age of 23 which is slightly younger than I was ordained. And spent a portion of the late 1930s in Manchuria with his teacher, Genpo Roshi. The Japanese had invaded and occupied Manchuria one of the precursors to the Second World War. For the United States, the Second World War started in 1941, but for Japan, it started much earlier with the invasion of China in the 1930s. Soen Roshi was ordained as the abbot of Ryotakuji, at the age of 43, so 20 years after he was ordained in 1950. And from his earliest times as a monk, very soon after he became a monk, he developed a friendship with Nyogen Senzaki, who was a Japanese Zen monk and Zen teacher who had studied with Soen Shaku, who was the first Zen priest to visit America. And under Soen Shaku's guidance, Nyogen Senzaki stayed on in America and lived the entire later half of his life in the United States, endeavoring to spread the Dharma. He was an admirer of Soen Roshi's poetry, and that's how his friendship began. They exchanged letters, and soon it was a steady stream of letters going across the Pacific Ocean between the two monks 
And I have to assume that it was through that friendship with Nyogen Senzaki that Soen Roshi developed the idea of spreading Dharma to the United States, eventually sending his student, Edo Roshi, first to Hawaii and then to New York. I want to read to you a little bit from this book, Namo Daibosa, which talks about the transmission of Zen Buddhism to America. And it deals with Nyogen Senzaki and Soen Roshi and also Edo Roshi. And I'd like to read to you the first talk that Soen Roshi ever gave in America. This was at the Theosophical Society Library in San Francisco in 1949. So just before he was ordained as the abbot of Ryutakuji. He says, Friends in Dharma, as a monk from the Far East, I want to read aloud the three objects of the Theosophical Society. One, to form a nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. Two, to encourage the study of comparative religion, philosophy, and science. Three, to investigate the unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in man. Soyen Shaku, the teacher of Nyogen Senzaki, came to America in 1905 and at that time stayed about nine months in this city, I believe. One day he was asked to give a talk for a Japanese gathering. The audience had heard of his reputation and so expected a profound lecture to be delivered. He began as follows. I have studied Buddhism for more than 40 years and have preached the teaching here and there. But only very recently have I begun to understand it. Now I understand that what I have understood is that after all, I do not understand anything. <laughs> Most of the audience was disappointed. <laughs> Some of them even laughed. Nangaku, a well-known Chinese Zen master and scholar, when visiting the sixth ancestor, Wineng, Eno, who is featured in today's koan, was asked, who is it that confronts me? In other words, who are you? Or who am I? Nangaku was dumbfounded and could not answer. Nowadays, there is no one capable of being dumbfounded like Nangaku. Everyone knows everything and can answer any question. Wolfgang von Goethe, whose 200th anniversary is this year, said in his Faust, I have, alas, philosophy, medicine, jurisprudence too, and to my cost, 
theology with ardent labor studied through. Here I stand with all my lore, poor fool, no wiser than before, magister, doctor styled. Indeed, already these 10 years I lead up, down, across, and to and fro my pupils by the nose and learn that we in truth can nothing know. This we in truth can nothing know or I don't know anything is exactly the point of Zen. We Zen monks apply ourselves day after day, year after year to the study of the unthinkable. Can you hear this sound? Who is hearing this sound? Who is the master of hearing? Americans and Japanese alike can hear this sound. So the master of hearing is without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. And as for this nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity, it is probably nothing but just hearing this sound. Because we can neither see nor catch this master of hearing. Most of us think there really is no such thing. But because it is a fact that we are actually hearing this sound, there must be some master of hearing in our body or in our mind or somewhere. But we are unable to explain what this is. And so we begin to wonder. And then deep doubt begins. This doubt is very good for Zen work. Doubt and doubt. Inquire and inquire. March and march to the unthinkable point. Ask who is it? who is hearing this sound. Ask and ask until you reach the bottom. All of a sudden, when the bottom is broken through, you will realize what the unexplained laws of nature really are. And you will be able to acquire an understanding of the powers latent in man. So this talk that he gave is very germane to the topic that we have today, which is Wuman Khan case 29, the sixth ancestor is your mind moves. And that in turn is very germane to the underlying topic, which is the truth of the origin of dukkha. Dukkha, for anyone who is not familiar with the term, is usually translated as suffering, although a better translation would be something like 
unsatisfactoriness or eh. <laughs> you know, suffering is such a grand word. You know, it's such, it's so dramatic, it's so, so noble. But that, that's not, that's not it. It's, eh. Eh. that's dukkha. Of course, dukkha can be dramatic. It can be. It can be incredibly dramatic, but that's not usually dukkha. Dukkha is usually just the, the pebble in your shoe, the, the door slamming in your face, the argument that you lose, and afterwards you think, I should have said this. You know, that's dukkha. Dukkha is with you all the time. And even when things are going right, and you know, this can't last. That's dukkha too. So how do we get this dukkha? Where does it come from? Why? Why are we stuck in this nonsense? If you study the Judeo-Christian tradition. The story is right there in the book of Genesis, right? Everything is wonderful. Adam and Eve are there in paradise. No dukkha. And one day, They do something they were told not to do. They eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And all of a sudden, dukkha. All of a sudden, they look at themselves and they say, whoa! <laughs> I don't have any clothes on. I gotta hide the stuff. And what the story really is about is the fall into duality, right? They're going along, everything's great. They are absolutely one with everything. You know, they, they, they're friends with God. They are absolutely having a great time. And suddenly they fall into this, this is good and that's bad. Make it bad. Hunger, bad. You know, it's very possible that this mythology of the Garden of Eden and the fall into duality is the attempt to depict 
the human evolution of consciousness, depicting it in a poetic fashion. At some point or another, humans became self-aware, became self-conscious. And with self-consciousness, suddenly there was this sense of separation, right? It's wonderful to be aware, but suddenly they're aware of I'm here and God is there. I'm here and the universe is there. Just like we're aware sitting here, I'm here and Nirvana is there. Awakening is there. And we're stuck. And we're stuck. In Mahayana terms, the primal delusion is the delusion of a separated individuality. I've just summarized the Diamond Sutra for you. <laughs> Okay, all of that chanting, you know, if you cut to the chase, that's it. We have this sense of I'm here and you're there. I'm here and New York City is somewhere outside that door. And this Self-consciousness is what gets us into trouble. I mentioned in my opening remarks that one of the first teachings given by Shakyamuni Buddha after his great awakening was the fire sermon. So I'm going to read you the fire sermon, or at least parts of it. Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was staying in Gaia at Gaia Head, and there he addressed 1,000 disciples saying, everything is on fire. How is everything on fire? The eye is on fire, forms, are on fire. Awareness of the eye is on fire. Eye contact is on fire and whatever arises from eye contact experienced as pleasure, pain, or neutral, that is also on fire. What fuels the fire? The fire of passion, the fire of aversion, the fire of delusion. The fire, I tell you, of birth, aging, and death, of sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despair. Then he goes on to enumerate all of the senses. The ear is on fire, and he repeats, as these sutras often do, the entire formula 
Sounds are on fire. The nose is on fire. Aromas are on fire. The tongue is on fire. Flavors are on fire. The body is on fire. Tactile sensations are on fire. The intellect. Ideas are on fire. Awareness of intellect is on fire. Intellect contact is on fire. And whatever there is that arises in dependence on intellect contact experienced on pleasure as pleasure, pain, or neutral, that's also on fire. Realizing this, the instructed disciple becomes disenchanted with the I, disenchanted with forms, disenchanted with I awareness, disenchanted with eye contact and whatever arises from eye contact, whether experienced as pleasure, pain, or neutral, they become disenchanted with all of it. So what does this have to do with the origin of Dukkha? And what does it have to do with the sixth ancestors your mind moves? When he talks about fire, he it means dukkha. He means the unsatisfactory nature of existence. Why is it unsatisfactory? Because it breeds grasping, it breeds aversion, it breeds delusion. The sixth ancestor was wandering through the temple grounds and he came upon these monks. The wind was flapping a temple flag and two monks started an argument. One said the flag moved. The other said the wind moved. They argued back and forth, but could not reach a conclusion. Their eyes were on fire. Their ideas were on fire. They were using eye contact to formulate an idea of a separated individuality not only by seeing the flag is over there and me over here, but formulating all sorts of ideas about, well, the flag is moving because the wind is moving and holding on for dear life to this opinion. And somebody comes along and says, that's not the wind, it's the flag is moving. Who cares? Does it matter? No. Their minds were moving. Their minds were creating this, this fantasy out of whole cloth. I'm right, you're wrong. So they have 
fallen into the trap. The trap of, I'm right, you're wrong. I, 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 I. Maybe one is right, maybe one is wrong. Who cares? It's a trap. And this trap is the origin of dukkha, the origin of rebirth. Once you have this craving to be right, once you have this craving to experience the pleasure of being correct, or experience the pleasure of seeing this wonderful flag moving. Experience the existence of self. You're stuck. 100% stuck. And something has to be done to make you get unstuck. And that's what our practice is about. Practice is about getting unstuck. When we talk about liberation or enlightenment, all that means is getting unstuck. Stop insisting that I know What was So and Roshi talking about? What was So and Shaku talking about? I've studied Buddhism for 40 years, and only recently have I come to understand it. And what I've come to understand is that I don't understand anything. That was So and Shaku. Soen Shaku, a great Zen master, and not only a great Zen master, but someone who went to, after becoming a Zen master and completing his Zen training, went to, I believe it was Burma, to study with the forest monks in the Theravadan tradition to see what they could teach him. And he said, after all this time, I've only recently begun to understand Buddhism. Only recently. And what I understand is I don't understand anything. This I don't know mind. And there's a difference between the I don't know mind of one who has inquired deeply and plumbed the depths and come to the wonderful realization that they're free. 
they're free, free from the need of having to be right, free from the need of having to be a big shot. free from the need of having to say that the wind is moving or the flag is moving. Just free. I don't know. I know this. I know this, but this, this is beyond words. This is beyond opinion. This is beyond fire. This begins with disenchantment. Disenchantment in the sense of disillusionment. Disillusionment in the sense of giving up your illusions, your delusions. Giving up the enchantment, which is like a spell that bewitches you and makes you think all of this is real or all of this is unreal. In another koan, Kyozen has a dream. And in his dream, he goes to Maitreya Buddha's place. Maitreya is the Buddha to come some billions of years in the future. And he's told that he has to give a Taisho. And he gets up and he says, the truth of Mahayana is beyond the four propositions and transcends the hundred negations. Taicho, Taicho, hear the truth. The truth of Mahayana is beyond all of this, beyond the flag moves, the wind moves, beyond the need to be right or wrong, to understand or not understand, to simply be in paradise, turning your back on that evil tree and its fruit this duality. I still have a little bit of time, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about mistakes and we all make them. Some of us make them and are aware of them. 
Some of us make them and are unaware of them. Some of us are more bothered by them than other people are. And what I really want to say to you is be grateful for your mistakes, whatever they might be. And don't regard them as mistakes. In the absolute sense, there is no mistake. The universe never makes a mistake. So whatever you do, you're doing exactly what the universe had in mind for you to do. So in the absolute sense, even the most bonehead thing that you can do is not a mistake. And in the relative sense, Whatever your mistake might be, if you realize it, it's no longer a mistake. It's just a teaching moment. This morning, I did a really bonehead mistake. Somehow or another, I put on my kesa and I forgot to put my zagu, my bowing mat on. And so I got to morning service and I had no bowing mat. Now, for about a minute, I was really embarrassed. I said, oh my goodness, here I don't even have a bowing mat. What do I do? Well, you bow. <laughs> what else are you gonna do? You bow. And I thought, well, ha. Huh. That's wonderful. Now I have something to talk about this afternoon. <laughs> and every mistake is like this. And if you are unaware of making a mistake, that's the worst kind of mistake because you don't have a chance to learn from it. So when somebody points out to you your mistake, be grateful. Consider them a bodhisattva. Be grateful to the person who has corrected you and be grateful to the universe for giving you that teaching moment. Look into whatever it is that is the lesson that you can take out of that. It's much better than, oh, I can't believe I did that. How horrible. That is dukkha. Making a mistake that's not dukkha. Learning from your mistake, that's wonderful. Holding on to the mistake, that's really a mistake.
in the fire sermon, Shakyamuni Buddha talks about fire and how it's related to dukkha. But there's another kind of fire, and that is the fire in which you burn everything. You burn your mistakes, you burn your ego, you burn your self-importance. That is when you fully embrace whatever task you're engaged in, whatever it is that you are doing, walking, eating, going to the bathroom, doing zazen, lying down to go to sleep. Doing this, just this, nothing added. Doing this without the mind moving, without a sense of I'm here and the task is there. I'm here and the goal is there. That is stopping the mind. There's no wind, there's no flag, there's no mind moving, just this. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.